Hi listeners, it's your wonderful host, Ryan Daly, and I am inviting you to stick around after this episode is over for an exclusive sneak peek at my upcoming project, The Secret Origins Podcast. Look for it right after this episode. Enjoy! Wait, you can't look for the podcast? Listen to it. Listen to it or something. But Wow, this is stupid. I don't know why I thought this would work. God damn Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. Another episode of Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and we are finally talking about Black Canary in the New 52. Why? Because her early 90s series wasn't painful enough. On previous episodes of this show, whenever I talked about some of the wonkier aspects of Black Canary's history, Diablo Frank would ask if the issue was corrected or streamlined by the New 52 reboot. The short answer is the New 52 got rid of the worst parts of Dinah's continuity also the best parts. For the longer answer, you need to read the New 52 volumes of Birds of Prey and Team 7, but I really strenuously recommend not reading these books, ever. In fact, if you see them, throw your shoes at them and run in the other direction. For a slightly less painful exploration of her stupid New 52 history, we can turn to the most recent volume of DC's Secret Origins comic, Issue 11 tells the new origin stories of Guy Gardner, John Constantine, and, most relevant for this podcast, Black Canary. Big shout-out to Martin Gray, one of my Twitter friends and, I imagine, a lovable Englishman who sent me the pages from the Black Canary part of this story, because, really, there was no force on heaven or earth that could have made me buy it. On the bright side, I am really looking forward to her new series coming out in June by the team of writer Brendan Fletcher and artist Annie Wu. I've seen some pages from a sneak preview of that run, and it looks like a lot of fun. I'll talk a little bit about that later on. But for now, let's... well, let's just dive into the new 52 Black Canary. Good. 
Black Canary's first appearance in the New 52 was in Birds of Prey number 1. She starred in that book for 30-something issues, the first 25 of which I have reviewed on my Flowers and Fishnets blog. They were all terrible. It started with Black Canary forming the team Birds of Prey, which consisted of Batgirl, Katana, Poison Ivy, and new character Starling, who represented every stupid cliché and bad idea Dwayne Swarzynski could imagine. Right from the start, Dinah Lance was wanted for the murder of her husband, Kurt. Swarzynski never revealed why she was wanted for killing Kurt Lance, nor did he ever explain why she formed the team to begin with, or what their agenda was. He wrote the book for 18 issues, and he never conveyed the most simple, basic information, like why this team exists. They have no function. Are they superheroes, or private investigators, or what? Because they aren't managed by Oracle in the New 52, there is no operating structure, and we never understand their status quo. From issue number one on, they're always just bouncing from one problem to the next, and the problems always stem from their personal lives. They are completely reactive, so it doesn't make sense that they're even together. Why would Dinah be recruiting these other women? What purpose did the team have? Beyond that, there was the issue of Canary's wanted status. She is a fugitive, but unlike other fugitives, Dinah thinks she's guilty. She believes she is responsible for her husband's death, and she's running from the law. One major problem is that we, as readers, never saw how Kurt Lance died. We don't have any context for the situation, any extenuating circumstances that might let Dinah off the hook. She thinks she killed her husband, and we have no alternative but to believe her. So why are we supposed to follow her when she's running from the cops and the government or other vague, shadowy threats that seek to punish her? Another problem, this compromises all of the surrounding characters. What are we supposed to think of Batgirl and Katana that they work with a woman who admits to killing her husband? The ladies don't know any more about it than we do, so the fact that they don't take Dinah down makes them accomplices. During the Night of Owls crossover, the Birds of Prey encounter Batman, and he flat-out calls Black Canary sloppy and dangerous. This is a woman who, in a previous lifetime, chaired the Justice League of America— and while that wasn't exactly the high-water mark for the JLA, she has been part of the League since the 1960s. But in the New 52, Batman doesn't think she's fit to fight crime. There's also a huge problem with trust in Birds of Prey. Black Canary trusts criminals like Starling and Poison Ivy when she has no reason to. Everyone tells her she shouldn't trust them. They'll betray her. Dinah doesn't listen. And guess what? They betray her. She also trusts a guy named Condor when everyone tells her not to. She even sleeps with him before, guess what? He betrays her. Black Canary is stupid and selfish. If she trusts criminals who routinely stab her in the back, she's a moron who probably is too stupid to live. If she thinks she's a murderer, but she's still running from the law and getting her friends tied up in her messes, then she's not a hero. She's a dumb, cowardly criminal. How did Batman not take her to jail during his dinner break? The 18 issues of Birds of Prey that Swarzynski wrote are some of the worst damn comics I have ever read. I blame a lot of the New 52's problems on heavy-handed editors and micromanaging, but I can't give this guy that excuse. I can't even say he didn't understand the characters or what makes them tick. No, these are fundamental storytelling problems that an author can only make when he doesn't understand how any characterization works, or if he just doesn't give a shit. 
Then, a year into the New 52 era, DC launched Team 7, consisting of several members from the DC Universe and several from Jim Lee's Wildstorm Universe. For some reason, Dinah was included with the Black Ops Special Forces team that included Deathstroke, Grifter, John Lynch, the fat-shaming New 52 Amanda Waller, and Dinah's husband, Kurt Lance. This book took place a couple years in the past, so there was a vague hope that it might explain some things about Dinah's past. Unfortunately, sales were so abysmal that the book was cancelled with issue 8. The last couple issues tried to rush some explanations, like how Canary's sonic scream was the product of genetic experimentation by the government, and how she didn't really murder her husband Kurt, he died in the field when she used her canary cry to destroy the rogue island nation of Gamora. Team 7 was, if possible, worse than Birds of Prey. At least Birds had half-decent art, and the writing, while bad, was consistently bad. Team 7 had three or four writers and multiple artists on its nine issues, and none of them were ready for prime time. Finally, after more than two years of unresolved mysteries, dangling plot threads, and shitty, shitty writing, Black Canary had another part of her origin told in Birds of Prey issue 25. This was part of the Batman Zero Year crossover. It was also the last issue of the series I read. That issue, written by Christy Marks, revealed how Dinah Drake, a teenage runaway, is discovered by Desmond Lamar, who runs a dojo in Gotham City. Desmond takes Dinah in and trains her in the martial arts, then he dies of cancer. Then all the power goes out in Gotham City and Dinah fights members of the League of Assassins. Then she's found by John Lynch, who recruits her into the army and eventually Team Seven. This, too, was a dumb story, but at least it answered some nagging questions about when and how Dinah learned to fight and why she joined the military, an element that was never part of her history before the New 52. The recent secret origin story takes place between the end of Team 7 and the beginning of Birds of Prey. It's only 12 pages, and most of them have less than five word balloons or captions, so it's a pretty quick read. The story is called Code Black, and it was written by Christy Marks, with art by Rick Burchett, colors by Nathan Fairborn, letters by Carlos M. Mangual. It also has three editors, which is always a good sign. It starts with Dinah, whose Team 7 codename was just Canary, jumping on a transport ship, telling Steve Trevor to get her and the surviving members of Team 7 the hell away from what's left of Gamora. The island nation has collapsed and been swallowed by the sea, taking with it the body of her beloved Kurt Lance. As they fly back to the United States, Dinah reflects on her life with Team 7. She thought the team gave her a purpose. She fell in love with Kurt, and they both volunteered to undergo genetic experiments to make them better operatives. Instead, the treatments gave her the power to unleash devastating sonic blasts from her voice. Kurt's power was the ability to amplify or negate Dinah's scream with his touch. That's how Gamora was destroyed. He supercharged her beyond the limits of her control. That's how Kurt supposedly died. So it wasn't really Dinah's fault. She wasn't a murderer, but readers had to wait two freaking years to figure that out. Yet Dinah still calls herself a killer and a freak. Maybe because she's heartbroken. During the debriefing, she confesses to marrying Kurt in secret and asks that her name be legally changed from Dinah Drake to Dinah Lance. After Kurt's funeral, Dinah visits the grave of her sensei, Desmond Lamar. She flashes back to still more unrevealed parts of her story. Her mother abandoned her when she was four. She bounced around foster care for years, believing that she was unlovable, and so intentionally taking on the role of troublemaker. 
When she was ten, Sensei Desmond found her and trained her, becoming the father she never had. He died of brain cancer when she was nineteen, and soon thereafter, the events of Batman's Zero Year plunged Gotham into a citywide blackout. During the chaos, the dojo was destroyed, but Dinah protected a government stooge from the League of Assassins, drawing the attention of John Lynch. Needing a purpose and something to serve, she joined the army and Lynch groomed her for Team 7. Back in the present, which is actually still the past, after Kurt's funeral, Amanda Waller warns Dinah that the military has ordered a code black for Dinah. Basically, they're going to throw her in a prison somewhere where no one will ever see her again. Dinah thinks she deserves that fate. Waller tells her to grow some balls and gives her the costume that Dinah would wear in Birds of Prey. A black ops team comes for Canary. She takes them out with her sonic scream and her fighting skills. Then she jumps on a motorcycle and rides off into the night. She knows they'll keep looking for her, so she'll have to operate outside the law. This is called going black, and thus the Canary becomes Black Canary. This was a succinct retelling of what we knew before while also filling in the gaps of why Black Canary was on the run in the beginning of Birds of Prey and why Amanda Waller was keeping tabs on her. I think Marx did the best she could to make something usable out of the appallingly bad mess that Swarzynski left in his wake. So, to sum up, for Diablo Frank and any other listeners who haven't followed Black Canary in the New 52, she was born Dinah Drake, her birth parents are virtually non-existent, she grew up in foster care, always misbehaving, until she ran away to Gotham City. She was sort of adopted at age 10 by Sensei Desmond Lamar, who trained her in martial arts fighting and discipline. At age 19, she joined the military, and after a few years, she became part of the Special Forces Group Team 7, along with Amanda Waller, John Lynch, Cole Cash, a.k.a. Grifter, Slade Wilson, a.k.a. Deathstroke, some other assholes nobody cares about, and Kurt Lance. Note that's not Larry Lance or Quentin Lance, but Kurt Lance. During her time with Team 7, she underwent genetic experiments that turned her into a metahuman with a sonic scream. Kurt's power affected hers. They got married in secret. During Team 7's disastrous final mission, she thought her power killed Kurt. The team was disbanded, and Dinah was set to be arrested and thrown in a cell. Instead, she ran. Around the time the New 52 began, Dinah Lance, age 25-ish, had partnered with Starling and Batgirl, and she started recruiting other women like Katana and Poison Ivy. For what purpose? Unclear, but maybe to act as street-level crime fighters or heroes for hire? I don't know. She rarely used her sonic scream in those issues because she was afraid of losing control of it. She, she acted like it was more of a burden, more of a curse. Nobody trusts her. Nobody thinks she's mentally sound, and everyone betrays her at some point. Right around the time I stopped reading, it was revealed that Kurt Lance was only mostly dead, as Miracle Max would say. Over the last six or seven issues of Birds of Prey that I didn't read, I think Dinah makes a deal with Rachel Ghoul to bring her husband back from the dead. In exchange, I don't know, I think she marries Rachel Ghoul or something. I don't care. We sacrificed so much good material for this crap. No longer is Dinah the daughter of a cop, or the wife of a cop. She has never been part of any version of the New 52 Justice Leagues. They actually made a point of not recruiting her twice in Justice League and Justice League of America. She's not shackled to Green Arrow, which I'm fine with, but I don't think they've ever even met in this continuity. She doesn't have a daughter, there's no craziness there, but she has no real family to build a supporting cast around. Sensei Desmond would be a great source of wisdom and support to guide her, except he's been dead for six years. 
Dinah is not compassionate. She's naive. She's not feisty. She's bitchy. I hate the new 52 Black Canary. And based on how she's treated by the writers and editors, I'm assuming that DC hates her too. Or at least they did. Even when she guest appeared in recent issues of Batgirl, Dinah was written as a pretty cold-hearted and unforgiving bitch for a lot of it. But now, I think the New 52 era is over. I don't know what this post-convergence era is called, if it's divergence or whatever. All I know is there are actually some books that I want to read, like the new Martian Manhunter that I'll try, and especially Black Canary, who's getting her first ongoing series in 22 years. In the new, new status, Dinah is the lead singer of a rock band called Black Canary. This was established in Batgirl, and the new Black Canary book will pick up with the band touring North America and getting involved in all sorts of hijinks and mischief. This morning, Brendan Fletcher sent me a direct message on Twitter with an eight-page preview of the new series. It shows the Black Canary band getting mobbed outside their latest venue. Except the mob isn't full of adoring fans, but rather angry other bands, each with a grievance against Black Canary. They blame Dinah for stealing their gig, beating up their drummers, breaking their bass player's heart, that sort of thing. A few unwise rockers try to settle their beefs physically. Dinah beats the crap out of them. A larger-than-usual guitar player actually knocks Dinah onto the roof of the club where Black Canary is getting ready to play. Dinah needs to unleash her canary cry to take out the guitar player. The preview ends with the band taking stage and starting the show. This preview was very, very encouraging. First, Any Woo's art is stellar. I can't think of many times when I've seen a style like hers on a superhero comic. That's a good thing, because it means the book will have an identity of its own, a flavor unlike any of the other books on the shelves, and it won't get lost in the shuffle. I don't know how long sales will justify the production of this series, but when it's cancelled, it won't be because it looks and sounds like every other book on DC's slate. And bless their hearts, they put Dinah back in an outfit that resembles her classic look. She's got the fishnets, the one piece, and the leather jacket, and they all make sense because she looks like a rock star. I'm pretty sure Lady Gaga wore the same outfit in one of her, well, admittedly more modest appearances, but still... The image works for this. And as for the writing, it's still pretty early to judge how compelling the plots and the characterization will be in the long term, but in just these eight pages, I can tell you that Fletcher writes Dinah as close to the Gail Simone version as any writer I've ever seen. And that, too, is a very good thing. This Dinah is feisty and scrappy without being bitchy. She's sexual without being objectified. She's not irrationally stubborn, nor is she quick to anger and violence, but she's got those in her repertoire if she needs them. This Black Canary may be based on the New 52 version with all of its stupidity and other stupidity, but the new, new Black Canary looks like a lot of fun. We might not have her history with the Justice League or Green Arrow or even Batman, but if the book works, it works. I'm pretty excited going forward. And now, Canary Correspondence, where I read your comments and give shoutouts to the people who promoted the show on social media. Twitter favorites came from Martin Gray, Cash Flag, Kyle Benning, Between the Pages, Jason Pickering, and Craig Lives Here. Twitter retweets came from Martin Gray, Cash Flag, Kyle Benning, Between the Pages, Charlton Hero, Ange, and Greg Araujo. 
I received two comments on the blog for episode 10. The first came from Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary. Ange said, I was a kid in the dollar comic age. Back then, that was a lot of money, but you got a lot of pages. I tended to get Superman Family or Adventure, rarely spending the precious Washington to get World's Finest. I do have absolutely vivid memories of World's Finest 258, though, a story about a Kryptonian lycanthropy virus. That sounds fun. Uh, Ange continues, So, much like the Solo Canary reviews, this will be new for me. First off, like you, I enjoy when villains use ranged martial weapons against Green Arrow. Slingshot works for me here as well. I always thought Javelin should be an arrow rogue, and even Slipknot works better for Ollie. While the Rainbow Archer is quirky, he doesn't instill the fear that Merlin does, I would like him as a canary nemesis. Her having to fight an archer would resonate, given the Green Arrow connection. Perhaps the best thing about this story, though, is the art. I am a big Nasser slash Netzer fan. Dinah looks unbelievable here. Beautiful and strong. He drew a Martian Manhunter story guest starring Supergirl, where Kara looks gorgeous. I can't put my finger on it exactly, but Nasser's style reminds me of a perfect blend of Marshall Rogers and Mike Grell. Well, thanks for that comment, Ange. I can see the similarities between Nasser and Rogers and Grell. Then again, it's hard for me to identify a lot of DC artists from the Bronze Age. I wouldn't call it a house style, but it seems like a lot of the great artists had a period where they drew lean, angular, Neil Adams style that wasn't quite as exaggerated as Adams. I'm still trying to collect all of Dinah's appearances in World's Finest. There are a few that still elude me for what I'm willing to pay for them. And after that, I'd like to collect all of these dollar issues, because I really enjoy the other features in the books, like Hawkman and Wonder Woman and, surprisingly, Red Tornado. Javelin would be a good Green Arrow villain, along with Slingshot and Red Dart. The Slipknot suggestion, I believe, was made first by Diablo Frank on the Fire and Water podcast, and it made sense to a lot of people. The next comment on episode 10 came from Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. Chris said, I love Nasser's stuff, especially from this period. He drew a story in the Batman Spectacular, DC Special Series number 15, that was one of the first Batman comics I had bought for me off the rack. I seem to recall that lovely opening image of Canary being used on some merchandise at some point. It will come to me later. I have this comic, so it's fudging with my memory if I saw Rainbow Archer anywhere besides here. I know Slingshot resurfaces during Ollie's run in Detective, drawn by Gil Kane. I agree, his costume is the type you just don't see anymore. Not over-designed, but functional, and still a bit stylish. I'm a sucker for the Red Dart as well, thanks to a reprint of his first appearance in DC Digest in the early 80s. Neither of these guys got Who's Who entries, which is a shame. The Earthworm did, but they didn't. That ain't right. Yeah, Chris, I think that's why everyone just universally hates who's who. So, what are you going to do? It was a bad book. Moving on to the last episode, which was part of Conway's Corner Crossover, Ange wrote again, Another great episode highlighting comics and stories I know nothing about. Bring on the education. Man Bear sounds like a standard villain, but the intern villain sounds more interesting to me. When you read the line with all the pauses, my first thought went to Peter Lorre, too. But why Lorre is a mad doctor? Lastly, the art by Nasser Austin is just stunning. Canary looks like a complete bombshell, no doubt. But the action sequences seem well-rendered as well, so it isn't just cheesecake. Looking forward to hearing more. Ange has also covered a lot of Jerry Conway written stories about Superman and the Justice League for his Supergirl blog. You should definitely check those out. Uh, Kyle Benning wrote in, I have always had a real fondness for these Dollar Comics World's Finest issues. They are some of my all-time favorite DC books. These definitely served as my first introduction to Black Canary as a character, and I really enjoyed the duality of the Green Arrow and BC Solo features making one larger story. 
Nasser slash Netzer's art in this is fantastic. Man, he could draw a sexy canary. That panel with some well-placed hair, woo! As Shag would say, she's hot. I will say, even at an early age, the whole canary outfit change occurring while she was KO'd gave me an uneasy feeling. It's best not to think about what else might have happened when her captors changed her clothes. When I was a kid, I really dug the man-bear as a monstrous villain. But since South Park introduced man-bear-pig, I just can't see him without busting out laughing now. Oh, Kyle. You've ruined it. It is a creature which roams the earth alone. It is half man, half bear, and half pig. Kyle went on and thanked me for my public service reading and reviewing the unreadable Black Canary series from, the ni- from 1993. I'll try to get back to those issues to finish the series this summer. And Kyle has a podcast called King Size Comics Giant Size Fun, which is what it sounds like. He covers tons of different giant size comics, including annuals, specials, deluxe editions, that sort of thing. And he's a Cubs fan, so he's got that going for him. Chris Franklin came back and commented on episode 11. I picked this issue up in a back issue bin at some point, and man, it's a fun ride. Man Bear is truly disturbing. Nasser draws a disgusting amalgam of man and beast. It looks like it hurts. His art in this period looked to be the love child of Neil Adams and Mike Grell, so there's more comparisons to the art. And that's just plain Purdy. Speaking of Purdy, Kyle, and by association Shag, is right. Dinah is hot. smoking hot. You know he didn't have to draw Dinah in that state of undress, but I for one am glad he did. Can you imagine a 70s Green Arrow Black Canary series written by Conway and drawn by Nasser and Austin? This stuff is too good for backups. Looking forward to you following this story because it leads to the pivotal moment in my young comic reading career when we get buck-necked Dinah disrobing in front of a werewolf. I was only three when this comic was brought for me off the stands, but it made an impression. I will get to that issue, Chris, I promise. Uh, As for the ongoing Green Arrow and Black Canary series by this creative team, absolutely, where can I subscribe to that comic? Oh, it might be a little bit too late. The last comment came from Professor Alan Middleton. Among the many nice things about the Conway crossover event was my finding a bunch of new podcasts to listen to. I listened to this one, then immediately downloaded the rest of them, and I'm working my way through the back catalog. have thoroughly enjoyed all of the episodes I've listened to so far, including this one. I have a soft spot for Dollar Comics. What a bargain. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Prof. <laughs> I always wanted to say that. Professor Allen runs the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, which includes the Quarterbin Podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age, and Shortbox Showcase. I highly recommend checking these shows out. Allen is a great podcaster and a pretty smart guy. If nothing else, you got to check out Relatively Geeky Podcast Episode 3, which talks about the boom and bust of comics in the 90s. It's a fascinating listen. And that is all for this episode of Flowers and Fishnets. If you enjoyed the show, you can leave a comment on the blogger page, blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. There you can contact me with any questions or comments. You can also find me on Facebook and on Twitter using the handle at blackcanaryfan or at ryandaily01. Or you can search the username Count Druncula. Flowers and Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use, and I make no money off this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to stick around after this musical cue because there's a special sneak preview of the Secret Origins podcast coming up.
Hi, devoted listeners. It's Ryan Daly here to give you an exclusive sneak peek at my upcoming Secret Origins podcast, a review show dedicated to the post-crisis Secret Origins comics. Secret Origins told, or retold, or occasionally reimagined the origins of many of DC's legendary superheroes, including Batman, Superman, The Flash, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Jonah Hex, Nightwing, Plastic Man, Batgirl, Blackhawk, Black Lightning, Booster Gold, Detective Chimp, The Legion of Superheroes, and a hundred others. But I won't be alone in my coverage of these epic stories. I'm bringing the best and brightest and irredeemablest guest stars from the blogosphere and podcast community, such as Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. I think this is a great idea for a podcast, and I wish I'd thought of it first, but it's in good hands. Chris and I are going to be reviewing the first issue of Secret Origins, which tells the story of the Golden Age Superman. And now, Chris, I don't know if this has ever come up before on your own show... But would you say you're much of a Superman fan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I am definitely a Superman fan. Uh, Superman, the movie, is still my favorite movie of all time. That's my Star Wars. I don't remember a time when I didn't know who Superman was. Tim Wallace from Court Industries, a blog devoted to Blue Beetle. My friends, my close friends, would probably tell you that Aquaman was my favorite hero. And they wouldn't be too far off from the truth... But there was already a pretty decent blog covering Aquaman, so I went for my number two, which was which was Blue Beetle. And this issue actually has a lot to do with uh, why he's one of my favorites. Luke Giaconetti from the Hawkman blog being Carter Hall in the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. Thank you for having the, the enthusiasm to talk about Halo, because this is not a character that I know much about. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the oddballs in that I'm an Outsiders fan who doesn't like the Teen Titans. So I, <laughs> I figure I'm, I'm pretty much required to do my, my, uh, you know, my due diligence in defending the members of the Outsiders team, especially one of the originals. Siskoid from Siskoid's blog of Geekery and the Hero Points podcast. One of the subjects I keep returning to is Golden Age superheroes. I like exploring the the history of comics, and especially DC Comics, which has the biggest load of, uh, of Golden Age heroes. In Secret Origins is full of these because Roy Thomas wrote um, you know, half the series or so, and just like he wrote a lot of Golden Age heroes and brought Golden Age heroes to, the, um, to our attention in the 80s, which was when I started reading comics. And, of course, Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water podcast. The plan was, all this time, once we finished Who's Who, we were going to do the Secret Origin series. That was our next ga- our next uh, big project. And you have swooped in and stolen it. And I'm just saying, you better not screw this up. I mean, you're on episode four, and you brought in your biggest guest star yet. But from here, if it's just downhill, I'm going to be really ticked off that you ruined our idea. Mm, I wasn't really listening to any of that. Plus more incredible guest stars, including Sean Engel, Chad Bokelman, Kyle Benning, Nathaniel Wayne, Paul Scavito, Greg Araujo, Tom Paneris, Doug Zawissa, Aaron Moss, Alan Middleton, Max Romero, Gene Hendricks, Stella, Ange, Diabolu Frank, and possibly as many as ten other guests, or as few as none. Join us as we uncover the secret origins of all your favorite DC heroes, except for Wonder Woman, and Aquaman, and Supergirl, and the Huntress, and Red Tornado, and Mira, and Aqualad, and Jon Stewart, the Green Lantern, and Wildcat, and Metamorpho, and Geoforce, and Mr. Terrific.
The Secret Origins Podcast, starting in June 